With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars Rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network. So Amanda Palmer, author of The Art of Asking, musician, performer, speaker, author, uh, thanks for coming on to my podcast. No problem. Hi. Uh, Amanda, uh, I, when I was reading The Art of Asking, I got actually depressed at first because I'm supposed to write, <laughs> I, I'm supposed to write a book called The Power of Ask. And I actually said, even to my publisher, I can't write this anymore. Amanda Palmer has already written the book. Because your book is actually. You maybe have to change the title. <laughs> I'm sure. You know, I felt, if it makes you feel any better, I felt exactly the same way. Um, right when I started busting into my book and, and writing um, the first few chapters, I picked up Daring Greatly by Brene Brown. And I was like, fuck, she already wrote my book. This is useless. Um, even though she was writing it from an academic perspective, like we were covering a lot of the same ground. And then I just gave myself cosmic permission, you know, even though, even though I was saying a lot of the same things, I decided to embrace it as a matter of zeitgeist. Well, well, so, a couple, a couple of points there. I, I mean, I think, I think her book, which I read also is an excellent book. I, I think it does rely a lot on academic research as well as her personal experience. Whereas I view your book almost as it's almost like a weird sort of sequel to Just Kids by Patti Smith because it's not only about the art of asking, but it's also about art and how does one become an artist and when does one when does one give themselves permission to say they're an artist? And what, what do you see yeah. in the relationship between asking and being an artist? Well, God, I mean, there's just collisions all over the place and – I mean, and that's the thing. I, I feel like we are fundamentally as human beings. I feel like we're all artistic at a certain level. We're all creative. We all see connections. We all have the ability to manifest from scratch. You know, in other cultures, you know, our culture is pretty weird. In other cultures, everybody sings, everybody dances, everybody creates. And, you know, we've we've got a bizarre way of defining art to begin with. And one of the things that I think is so sad about our culture is that we make art and artists such a sort of, you know, special compartmentalized thing when actually it's not. And, you know, asking is fundamentally about connection. And so is art. 
I mean, when you boil everything down to its simplest component, little protons and neutrons, I mean, art is about people connecting with people at a, at a really, really basic level. And, that's and you, what art is. And, you and, know, so, and so is asking. So, I mean, that's where the big Venn diagram overlap is as far as I'm concerned. You know, and p- part of it all, when you, when you, when you put a work of art out there or when you ask, and it doesn't matter what you're asking for, I think both things share this element of vulnerability. Like, I'm afraid often to ask people a favor, for instance. And I think a lot of people are. Or many people are afraid to ask for a promotion. Or many people are afraid to ask, hey, look at or buy my art. And how do you, yeah. how does one overcome uh, that vulnerability, do you think? What's the, what's an easy way, even though there might, there might not be an easy way? <laughs> I wish there was an easy way. Um, there's not an easy way. And that's the point. If there was an easy way, uh, we'd all be happy and everybody would do it all the time and we would be living in a fantastic society with no fear and no pain. Um, and the problem is, you know, the problem is always just fear. It always comes back to fear. Fear of rejection, fear of feeling more disconnected than before, Fear, you know, that fear of failure that, you know, that, 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 that is associated with rejection. And again, like both of those things show up in, in art and in asking. I mean, art, art requires asking because you don't make art in a vacuum. You make art to share with others. And I've always thought, you know, any musician who's ever told me, nah, it's bullshit. I make art for myself. I don't actually make music for people to listen to. You know, I would go crazy if I didn't write songs. I just don't believe them. I believe that fundamentally down there, expression needs a target. It, it, it It's never just you alone in your room with your brain and your brain is your own audience. Um, well, well, can, it, can can be, it can be close to that and it can be just expression for God or just expression to get something out of your system. But ninety per ninety nine point nine percent of the time, um, the expression is for something else. It isn't. It isn't. It just doesn't exist alone. And that brings us around to asking, because then you're asking the universe to regard what you've created, whether it's the people or whether it's God or whether it's the kids down the street. And then in you know comes rolling in the judgment. Well, then also, you know, art often costs money to make. Like if you wanted to spend your life creating art and not working in an office, you know, just kind of like at the basic level, you need money for it. And I think I think you were able to combine this asking with art with money so well in your Kickstarter project, which I which I should mention, you had at the time the biggest Kickstarter ever. You raised, uh, you know, $1.2 million to do an album with almost 25,000 backers. That was an incredible. And that's a huge ask of your audience. Yeah. And what, 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 well, but, but funny enough, the ask wasn't huge. The ask was small. The result was huge. The ask was give me a dollar or give me 25 or if you're a huge fan, buy the $500 package. But I asked, I asked people to, to purchase at the, the level they could afford. And I still encourage artists to this day to make the, 
to make the barrier to entry as low as possible to make sure that there is a $1 option to join the club. So, so again, it's, it's hard though. Like after you raise that money, there was all sorts of what I'm going to call outrage porn on the internet. And it seems like, (laughs) you know, it seems like you're subject to that quite a bit. Like, and you talk about that in the book, dealing with that. And, and I think anybody, you know, who puts themselves out there is going to have outrage porn come back because that's just, it gives people something to do. So I'm going to be mad at Amanda Palmer for a day. And, but yeah. they, they don't feel it, but you do. Cause it, it, you know, there's all sorts of studies that show you could have 10 things that say Amanda Palmer is the best. And then one thing that says, Oh, she sucks. And you're going to feel the one thing that's negative. And oh I, yeah. And it's, and the, and the ratio is way higher than that. You, I could have 99 articles praising me. And one tearing me down, and it it can it can overpower your psyche for a day for sure. Yeah, and so and that's part of asking too, because you can ask and people say no. Now you started kind of your I don't want to call it career, but you you when you were younger you were a, a frozen bride in Harvard Square, and you would exchange for a dollar or two a flower. So you had a lot of experience being rejected because I'm sure many people just passed you by and gave you nothing, but it still doesn't help with the asking later. Well, you know, I think a lot of what I learned as a street performer was how to frame my environment. And instead of, instead of feeling like those, you know, thousand people a day who walked by me without engaging were rejecting me. I just, I just didn't focus on them at all and I and I didn't frame them as rejectors and I didn't frame that as rejection. I just refocused my energy on, you know, the one in a hundred person who was passing and engaging. That was my audience. I discussed this in my book. Um, there's a great anecdote about um Dita Von Tees, the the burlesque star. And she tells the story of um, back in the day, you know, before she, you know, started making lingerie and perfumes and um, and doing high-end burlesque. She was, uh, like I was, a more run-of-the-mill stripper. And um, But she was, like I was, she was kind of an art freak. And while these other strippers in the club, you know, with their like their tans and their blonde hair and their neon bikinis would do their three songs and strip totally bare naked and get $51 bills from the dudes at the bar. Dita would like come out in vintage lingerie and strip down to her underwear, totally confusing everybody (laughs) who was used to like the regular stripper routine, but there would be one guy in the crowd who would give her 50 bucks. And I really see that. I mean, it's like a classic sort of cult audience um, artist relationship. And I really felt that I brought that kind of attitude to the street and I brought that kind of attitude to my band as well because my band made really crazy emotional theatrical music. It was not, you know, it was not the pop music of the day. It did not sound like dance music. It did not sound like Lady Gaga or Katy Perry. It sounded like piano and drums music, um, you know, made by two really emotional musicians. 
singing about, you know, pain, heartbreak, and transsexuality, and, um, you know, with mile-a-minute lyrics. And the people who loved that music really loved it. And the people who didn't get it and didn't have time for it, you know, they I just couldn't be concerned with them. I had to pay attention to the audience that I actually captured. So it seems like, and and you describe this um, in your book, it almost seems like you're talking about uh, three layers of people you can ask. There's the people who are just going to blindly walk by and you, you, you don't care about them. Or, I mean, you care about them, but it's not so important whether they say yes or no to you. And then there's the people who are your... Um, let's call them your weak ties. They're your, your, they're your fans and they love your product and you love them and you could feel comfortable asking them and, you know, in exchange for whatever, like on a Kickstarter project. But then there's the strong ties. Like you mentioned, you know, it was very hard for you to ask for money from your husband, for instance. And mm. what do you think the difference is between these types of asks? Well, I think some of it has to do with reciprocity. Um, and responsibility. You know, one of the things that I loved about being a street performer and like in that, um, does this show up in your other relationships, Amanda? Like, uh, yeah, it did. (laughs) I love fleeting love affairs, you know, on the street and in my real life. I loved, um, you know, I loved the idea of flash intimacy and, like hot, passionate love affairs without having to actually, you know, settle down to a committed relationship. And I, I ran my art business sort of the same way. Um, I ran my life, which is I sort of wanted like optimal payback for as little commitment as possible. Hey, don't we all? A lot of people will understand that when it comes to their relationships. And, um, and you know, and then there are times where you really have to dig your heels into a deeper relationship and say, okay, I'm going to have to compromise. I'm going to have to sacrifice. I'm going to have to pin myself to the wall a little bit, but in exchange, I am going to get safety, reliability. Um, and you know, and, and these are the choices that we make in our business relationships and in our love relationships. They, they really reflect each other. You know, I personally was never, ever, ever going to get married. And then, you know, fucking look at me now. I did it. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 impossible. Ultimately, it's impossible to predict the future on basically any aspect of our lives. Um, so, you know, you fell in love, you got married, um, which you didn't expect to have happen. But even after you got married, you mentioned it was still hard to ask for money from your husband. Yeah, it was, and I mean, I go into this in, like, painstaking detail in the book. You know, the ones who can hurt you, the ones who really have access to your heart and your pride and your weak spots, those are the people that that we're the most vulnerable with. Those are the people it's hardest to ask. It's our partners and our parents and our children, and the ones who can really, really hurt us because they're so close. And that's why there seems to be such a paradox sometimes where you've got people, you know, who are at the top of their game in in their businesses, and they can ask their customers, they can ask their bosses, but they can't go home and ask their wife 
for more love or more attention. And they can't ask their friends for a helping hand because they're just afraid they're going to get burned in that arena because they're too vulnerable and they're too scared. And we all have different kinds of armor and we wear it in different places and we have different Achilles heels when it comes to where we're afraid to be rejected. And so how do you... You can't graft one onto the other. You know, it can sometimes be really confusing because we expect someone who's great at business asking to be great at emotional asking. It just isn't always true. And and for you personally, like, how would you recommend someone break through that armor right now to 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 ask the important questions? Let's let, let's give a specific example. Um, somebody's going broke and they need to ask a relative to borrow some money, for instance, but they're scared to death of feeling ashamed and they're scared to death of rejection and how it'll affect their relationship with their relation. Um, accept the fear and be as transparent as possible. And I, and I say, you know, I, I think the only way that you can do it is you lead with the truth. So if you're feeling this, you know, if you're feeling this giant shame and fear That's what you lead with. You make the call and you say, you know, Uncle Chris, Aunt Betty, it is, it's, it's so hard for me to ask this. And my face is burning while I say it. And I'm filled with shame and it's really scary. And I'm sorry for this huge preamble, but I need to ask for a loan. And there's something about the honesty and the transparency and, and the kind of grace and humility in saying, listen, this is my situation and here is how I am feeling right now. And a huge part of it is also setting up and asking for things like that with the allowance that no is an acceptable answer. Because right. we, we have all of these subtle cues in language and in tone of voice where we can kind of say, and if you reject me, I will never talk to you again because I'll just be so humiliated or I'll be so angry or I'll be so resentful. And there's always a way you can package an ask like that with, and it's okay if you say no. It won't change our relationship. I needed to ask. I'm totally ready to accept no as an answer, but if it is possible, could you X, Y, Z? And so, and allowing people the space and the grace to say, uh, you know, it's a tough time for us to, or God, I wish you'd asked six months ago, or could you come back in a couple of months because right now it's not a good time. Allowing the space on the other side is so important. That, and, you know, that's a big one. That, that That's great advice. And now I, I want to take it one step further from that. Let's say the relationship between artists and fans. So often artists begin their career uh, by essentially giving as much giving as much as possible for free. That's how you get known. That's how you get out there. You either write books or paint paintings or perform as much as possible uh, for as little money as possible. And it just seems like a natural way that art happens. But then when you – at some point, you have to start – either asking for money or making for money from what you do because that's how people live. So so how do artists get over the fear of asking their fans for money? Um, and, and not, well, just, not one, just money, by the way. It could be favors. It could be anything. And, and you do this very well uh, across the board. Sure. I mean, a big part of it is that 
Um, I mean, we are living in this capitalist system of supply and demand, and and supply and demand does extend um, into pretty much every sphere of art. So, you know, you learn these things by experimenting, and as soon as there is a demand, that's when you can charge for it. And you learn what you can charge for it by experimenting, by making mistakes, by overcharging, by undercharging, by pissing people off, by asking for too much, by asking for too little. And, you know, and slowly you start to, you know, you start to find your groove and find the answer. And I still do this dance to this day. Every artist does. Because, you know, as long as you're an artist, people will always come and try to pay you too much or too little. And, you know, and your scruples need to be, you know, tightly screwed in place where, you know, you may be thinking you're looking at a gigantic payday, but it's going to come, you know, with a price tag to your reputation. Or you may be looking at really, really wanting to do someone a favor, um, but charging you know, charging someone a kind of a, a nominal per diem or a fee or just an honorarium so that it feels like your work has some value. You know, I was talking to a lawyer or seeing a comment, I think, recently from a lawyer um, on a discussion thread about art and money who said, you know, they get asked to work all the time for free, especially by art groups and artists who just don't have the money. Um, but to hire a lawyer to deal with the stuff that they need to deal with. And this is like a really, really good person who's really compassionate, who wants to help everybody. And she said, I have found that I have to charge something, even if it's just, you know, the minimum hundred bucks. Because when I work completely for free, I find that people don't cooperate as much. And she's had to, you know, she's worked for 10 years and she's just had to find that balance by toppling around and realizing that there are these mental barriers and, you know, these mental habits that we have when we think someone's just doing us a solid, you know, or when we've laid down money on the table. And studies have been done. I mean, the statistics are in. People will value things that they have paid for. To what extent do they need to pay for them? You know, it depends on the art. You know, is it an MP3? Is it a book? Is it a film? You know, is it shares in a company? And, you know, and there's, you know, our brains work a certain way. There's definitely hard science there to suggest um, that when things, you know, come for free too much and too often, our, our thinking does shift around them. And that kind of stuff just fascinates me. I'm always paying attention to it. Well, and I wonder how much of it is is inner, too, because, I mean, and you go through this a lot in your book where – you ask yourself in, in more or less, I'm, I'm probably paraphrasing, but you ask yourself, am I a real artist? Like you, you feel, you constantly mention the fraud police at every, every new level you get to in your career. You feel like the fraud police is going to pull you right back down. And I wonder to some extent, a lot of asking is about the inner battle, you know, uh, uh, you know, before you even ask, like where, where sure. do you value yourself on that, le- yeah, on that hierarchy well, of art? Like- Right. That's like step one is if you're going to ask with grace, you really have to believe in the worthiness of what you're asking for, whether it's art or business or love or whatever. 
because if you don't believe you really deserve this thing you're asking for, your ask is, isn't going to come across all that hot because anyone can see through you because you can't bullshit a bullshitter. And, and if you really don't believe what you're asking for, you're not going to get a really enthusiastic response from the person you're asking. It's, it's interesting because part of the connection between, let's say, art and asking is someone will usually ask something because they don't know what the real value is. So like, let's say I want to perform a service and I'm afraid to ask for more money for that service because I don't really know how to value that service. And art is often in the same place where you don't really know how to value right. art. You kind of have to, you know, the value is some sort of combination between your own perception of your skills and society's perceptions of your skills. And I think, I think kind of overcoming that is part of the issue with asking as well. Yeah. And a lot of it is, as artists, a lot of it is overcoming the idea of solidity, like the idea that this canvas and paint is inherently worth $5,000, no ifs, ands, or buts. And instead, understanding that art is a conversation, that everything is fluid, that it's all kind of bullshit anyway, but we have to assign value to things if we are going to eat, communicate, care, and, and get on with making more art. And the artists I know who are good at it are just good at accepting the, the bizarreness and the fluidity of commerce and saying, like, well, yes, you know, I've got to slap a price on this. And I have to accept that my time and energy and skill and inspiration and blood, sweat, and tears are worth something. And yes, it may feel random, but I have to keep moving and I have to keep making art so I'm not going to get hung up on the, you know, on the randomness and, you know, the seeming incongruousness of, you know, X equals dollar sign because it just, it could drive a person crazy. Well, and it and, does. And, I mean, I do know artists driven crazy because valuing, valuing your work can be so difficult because, you know, art is simultaneously worthless because it's not just a crate of grapefruits that you can track from point A to point B, but it's also priceless because it's this thing that infuses our life with meaning. And, you know, and since we're inherently artists, we should be able to be creative about this shit in the first place. So, you know, it's why I love talking with you about this now. Like, a big part of it is just accepting the fact that it's weird and talking about it openly and going, ha ha. You know, yes, it's random that a song on iTunes is 99 cents. And, you know, let's just accept that that's random and move on from there. Well, you know, it's funny. You mentioned um, people don't value stuff often that they get for free. And I tried this experiment once on a book I wrote. I, I said in the very front page, even before the title page, um, I, I want you to buy this book. But if you can prove to me that, but I know people don't value what they get for free. So if you can prove to me that you read the book and that you bought the book, then I will return your money if you want. And, uh, but, but I need you to buy it first because otherwise you won't value it. And the experiment. Or put a money back guarantee. It's so, it was sort of like a money back guarantee. Yes. And, you know, only one half of 1% asked for their money back, but, 
previously I had just given books away for free and I really felt yeah. like now just with that one change, people really were valuing the book a, a lot higher um, because they had to yeah. pay for it. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, the science is in that that is a true fact. And I have found that to be true in my experiments with um, pay what you want, pull down menus on my website as well. Generally, when you when you give option the people to pay what you want, they will usually choose zero. Um, but if you make the barrier, barrier to entry very, very low and you charge someone five cents, by the time they've input their credit card information, they're going to pay you a little bit more because they don't want to value your song at five cents. Yeah, and I guess also there's this uh, kind of uh, sunk cost, you know, cognitive bi- bias. Once they enter their credit card information, they relate that to all their other credit card transactions. Well, I, they, their brain starts thinking, well, I must have put my credit card in for a reason. And right. so their brain just tells them to give more money. But um, let me ask you this. So the fraud police was always trying to catch up to you in your claims to be an artist at every step of the way. Do you feel now you're an artist? <laughs> you know, I feel like Eminem. I am what you say I am. Like, <laughs> I think a lot of um, a lot of people have called me an artist. So yes, I can I can take on that mantle. Um, but but, but no, notice how you said that though. You still were dependent on everybody else. Like kind of like everybody took a vote. <laughs> And said, but you know, I think I think it's a little deeper than that because I definitely feel like an artist, but I feel like an artist is a title that that does come from the outside because I've felt like an artist from the day I was born, just as much as I just feel like a human being. And call me crazy, but when I look out at the sea of humanity, I kind of think everybody's an artist. I really do. I think most people um, who don't call themselves artists just aren't recognizing the creative aspects of themselves that that they could be or should be because they've been because they've been white. But pretty much everybody I know is a creative person and therefore an artist. Do you think? And do you think? Do you think, though, some people let let that that creative side stagnate a little bit, so they're not activating those muscles in their brain? Totally, totally. And I think it is a, it, I think it is a pox on culture that we that we box up artists so hardcore, and that we you know, and that we and that we favor our children. Like, oh, you know, Susie's the artist, and Johnny's the one who's good at math. And I mean, I really do think we 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 fuck each other up by not recognizing the degree to which we are are all really artistic um and you see that way more in this culture than you do in others you know i want to just um briefly close with one great example you have in your book where the the asking and the giving and what i call the outrage porn all intersected which was when you i love the term outrage porn by the way yeah, I'm gonna start using that. It's sort of like you know, it, it kind of came to me because it's sort of like once a year I was experiencing it heavily myself, and you just have to label it because that's how I distanced myself from it. Otherwise, yeah. I'll get dragged down by it. But there was this one example where, 
And I thought this was a great example where you invited local, wherever you were performing, you would send out the tweet or put it on your blog or whatever and say local artists can perform for free or come up on the stage with you or whatever. And then there was all this outrage that you weren't paying them, that somehow you were exploiting these people. And you made the point yeah. that you could have actually offered that as a reward on, on Kickstarter and people would have paid for it. And instead there was this yeah. outrage that you had to pay for them. So it's funny how like commerce and economics are totally warped depending on how you view it and, and also just how crappy people are that you're, that you, that you sometimes have to deal with. Yeah, well, and and more so a couple of weeks ago, um, Jack Conti of the band Compliments posted a Medium blog um, making all of his um, tour revenue transparent. And some of the same media outlets who criticized me a couple of years ago for that volunteer musician thing... Um, you know, these same people who said, Amanda, you need to pay your volunteers. This is totally unethical. You're an asshole. Um, some of these same outlets turned around and said, you know, Jack, you're an idiot. Why are you paying your band before you net a profit? So it's really like there's just no pleasing everybody. And I, I just wrote an article about that in The Guardian. And I said, you know, as musicians who want to be transparent, we're just, screwed the minute we open our mouths because if we play by the rules, we're kind of punished. If we find a clever way of dancing around the rules and being creative, we're punished. I mean, there really is this kind of outrage anywhere you go. But but what's and the difference? The only, the only way out is through. I mean, you got to just keep making your work and um, and ignoring the haters. There's no other way around it. But, but what's the difference between that and, let's say, Mick Jagger? So he doesn't, he's not totally transparent, but we roughly know the Rolling Stones makes like $200 million per tour. And he has, yeah. he's a billionaire and he has no problem asking for $150 for a ticket. Like, what separates him from the people who do have trouble asking? Uh, I The size of his penis? I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I think we have such a warped perception of value and and who has the right to ask and doesn't have the right to ask. I think the important thing is there has to be a blanket acceptance. Mick Jagger has to... We have to feel just as much acceptance and compassion for him and the billionaires and the Rolling Stones as we do... For the garage bands down the street who are afraid to charge five bucks for a ticket because we're all technically in the same boat. And if you can't see us all as human beings and artists with our own sets of problems, whether it's Mick Jagger the billionaire or the guy in the garage band or, you know, the girl in the folk club, you have to allow that we're all just trying to figure it out day to day and that there's no one who's not allowed to ask for something and there's no one who's allowed to ask for everything without, you know, with the assumption that they just can't be rejected. We're all human beings and we're trying to connect with and help each other. And you cannot selectively criticize, make fun of, or outcast anyone because they have or haven't been successful. It's just not fair. And it's not good for the general ecosystem of art and musicianship. 
And if Mick Jagger wants to go out and charge 150 bucks for a ticket, and someone out there feels like it's worth their 150 bucks to buy that ticket, then you have to have respect for both people in that exchange. Yeah, and you I, have to have respect for every artist and every audience member who wants to get into a relationship with that artist. Even if the shit you think they're asking for is really weird, you've got to have a blanket respect. Like, what's a weird thing to ask for? <laughs> I, don't know. I just asked that because you We're mentioned... We're in your own dildo. I really don't know. Good question. I think that's a good place to end. Well, well I'm, I'm going to end with a quote from the book. I'm going to end with a quote from the book where you say, you can fix almost anything by authentically communicating. And I think that's a good starting point for, for learning how to ask and getting over that vulnerability. And that's, that's in your book. I highly recommend people get the art of asking so that I can easily back out of doing my book. And <laughs> Amanda, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Uh, good luck with everything. And uh, um, thanks again. Thank you for having me. It's been great to talk. Thanks. Bye. Bye. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network at stansberryradio.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.